Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the Liberal campaign is so desperate they have to start dispensing fake news, plus why conscience rights for healthcare practitioners matter. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North, kicking up another week of Campaign 44. It is Monday, August 23rd, 2021. Hope you're all having a great day. What day are we on now? So it started on a a Sunday, so I guess we are on day, is it day nine of the campaign already? I know this is the, the first week's exciting, the last week's exciting, and the middle part can sometimes drag a little bit, but we'll uh, try to find some other things to talk about when there is less going on in Canadian politics than there is now. But you know what? The liberal implosion, I think, is worth a fair bit of coverage. The most recent example of this, you're going to be hearing a lot from, I know True North is covering it, everyone's talking about it, even the legacy media outlets are. Christian Freeland, the Deputy Prime Minister, the Finance Minister, one of the chief spokespeople of the Liberal Party of Canada, has been flagged by Twitter with disseminating manipulated media. So this is like right up there with Hunter Biden laptop, New York Post style Twitter intervention, which rarely tends to go against the left. But Christian Freeland has now been accused by Twitter of sharing manipulated media all over a tweet that the liberals have been putting out that is very much deceptively edited to show Aaron O'Toole saying something that he isn't really saying on healthcare. I want to play first off what Christian Freeland shared. This is the entirety of the Christian Freeland edit of this Aaron O'Toole clip, which is from a Q&A that Aaron O'Toole did during the Conservative leadership race last year with the Canada Strong and Free Network, formerly the Manning Centre. Would you be prepared to allow provinces to experiment with real healthcare reform including the provision of private, for-profit, and non-profit healthcare options inside of universal coverage. Yes. Now I'll elaborate a little bit more. (laughs) We can't have just one old model that is increasingly becoming inefficient, and we have to find public-private synergies, and that capital will come in to, to, to drive efficiencies. I've run on this for several years now. So right there, Aaron O'Toole asked unequivocally, are you going to let provinces do ooh, for-profit healthcare, private health healthcare? And he says, yes. And he talks about the need to have private synergies, capital, all of this sort of stuff. Well, this is a little bit of a longer clip, but I want you to hear it. This is the entirety of Aaron O'Toole's response. The question's fair. She didn't edit the question. From Kate Harrison, who you may see, she's on TV all the time as a conservative strategist and commentator. But this is Aaron O'Toole's actual response, unedited. Yes. Now I'll elaborate right. a little bit more. <laughs> I refer to my previous leadership quite regularly. Our team now calls that the warm-up because we're gonna win this one. But I also ran on this principle, Kate, because if we're expecting innovation and more choice and better performance, we can't have just one old model that is increasingly becoming inefficient because of the amazing new drugs that are dragging some of the funds into other areas in our healthcare system, especially biologics, which the Trudeau government also messed up in terms of the the NAFTA negotiations. 
if we want to see that innovation, we have to find public-private uh, synergies and make sure that universal access remains paramount. And I actually praised what Brad Wall did with respect to diagnostic imaging because he's actually making sure that wait times for everyone go down as a result of the, uh, of the investment by the private sector to make sure there are more diagnostic imaging machines. I thought that was a brilliant move to show the public at large. There's gonna be an overall benefit because everyone's wait times will go down, but people will be able to access services and that capital will come in to, to, to drive efficiencies, drive innovation. In fact, there was a decision in Quebec, the Cheruli decision, that says it's a right for Canadians. Now, because it was a civil code, not everyone applies it across the country. It is certainly, if the same issue came to the Supreme Court, there's no way they could say the state can prevent people, as you said, the, the communist China example. So let's try and do it in a way that's fair, measured, and keep the public with us. I've run on this for several years now, and I do think in the 905 My Region, people are open to it, provided we don't let the Liberals define us. We have to some, have someone that can defend these principles and these ideas. And I think in this race, I'm the only one who can. Now, if it helps you understand just how much was cut out of that, take a look at this transcript that someone on Twitter put together. The highlighted bits are things that were in Christian Freeland's version of it. The full transcript is what Aaron O'Toole actually said. And he talks about this key line, make sure that universal access remains paramount. He's not trying to upend or uproot universal healthcare. Quite the contrary, he's saying, let's work within the universal system to find new ways to do things, better ways to do things, and things that allow for the injection of private capital. This liberal terror about the idea of any private sector involvement in the healthcare system is completely absurd. Let's take a look at vaccines. The Liberals have been thumping their chests about their vaccine rollout. What has been the vaccination effort but a major, major partnership between governments and for-profit private companies? Pfizer is not a charity. Moderna is not a charity. AstraZeneca is not a charity. These institutions are doing these things to make money. And it's because of private sector innovation that the government has been able to do what it wants on vaccines. So this tweet that Christian Freeland shares is very much deceptive. It is, as Twitter says, manipulated media. She's trying to accuse Aaron O'Toole of saying he wants to auction off the healthcare system to the highest bidder. And what O'Toole is actually saying is a very valid thing, which is that, yeah, we have this healthcare system. It's not working all that well. Let's find ways to modernize it without threatening that core universality. Now, I don't want to make this about healthcare policy, but I am going to talk a little bit about why it is so disingenuous. The liberals are doubling down on this. One of the more charitable interpretations might have been that Christian Freeland was just being a team player. Some staffer put it out. She didn't even know about it. Well, this video from a rally at her office this weekend shows how proud she is of this, how much it fits in to the Liberals' campaign strategy. Had we not won the 2019 election, I wake up in a cold sweat thinking about that. Do you think the Conservatives would have provided the support to individuals and to businesses that we did? Do you think they would have bought the vaccines that we did? No. I don't think so. And so it really, really matters. And it matters for the future. 
Um, we put out, I think we put this out already. If not, you guys are going to get the scoop on the rest of the country. <laughs> but we tweeted out some video of Aaron O'Toole during the conservative leadership campaign where he talks about privatizing Medicare. Can you believe that? So she's proud about it. She's given everyone the drop telling them, oh yeah, we got this clip where Aaron O'Toole, can you believe it, defends private health care. Oh my goodness. And then Justin Trudeau was asked about it. Now he was asked about this after the liberals had been slapped with that manipulated media tag on Twitter. He was asked about this after the conservatives filed an official complaint with the commissioner of Canada elections, a complaint that basically is calling on Canada's election regulator to intervene because of the deceptive nature of this. And this is what Justin Trudeau had to say. Of the fact that Twitter says that a video that was posted by Christia Freeland has been manipulated and now counsel, legal counsel for the Conservative Party is asking for an immediate investigation into that video. What's really important here is that in the middle of a pandemic, Aaron O'Toole came out unequivocally in support of private health care in terms of for-profit health care. We posted the entire interview on it. Uh, on uh, 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 we posted the entire interview in its entirety, uh, and I encourage all Canadians to take a look to see what Aaron O'Toole has to say about what he sees on the future of healthcare. So he defends it. He says, "Oh no, we we put out the whole video. Yeah, if you you know click 19 times, you might find your way to where we put the whole video. But that's not the point. It's the thousands and thousands and thousands of people that have interacted with the deceptively edited one that's the problem. You don't get a pass on dishonestly clipping someone in a certain way just because you somewhere else put the full version. No, that that's besides the point." But here's the thing that's interesting. I mentioned a moment ago, the Conservatives have complained with the Commissioner of Canada elections. And I, I think this is important. Now, these things tend to take a fair bit of time for anything to happen. So I, I think it's a lot more in the, the realm of posturing right now than it is something that could have a, a substantial effect on the election. But nonetheless, the Conservatives are availing themselves of one complaint mechanism they have in this election. But the reality is we're talking about liberal panic right now. Last week they decided to have abortion day because they were losing in that regard. And I'm going to be talking a little bit more about the conscience rights question in a few moments on the show. But my goodness, what the liberals are doing here is throwing out every single stop they have imaginable. They're reaching right down into the bottom of that bag of cliches they carry from election to election. And it's, uh, st uh he's just like Stephen Harper. Um, okay. Yeah. They're, they're going to ban abortion, uh, uh, the privatizing healthcare, and people aren't really buying it. I, certainly not in my circles, and I try to keep an eye out for people and communities and groups that are not just those who think of the world the way I do and see the world the way I do. A part of it seems to be, to the media's credit, the media seems to be not completely buying in to the whole scheme this time around. I don't know if it's that the liberals are, are just going to be dropping these things every day until the election's over, or if they are just completely using up every attack they have in the first week because they have nothing else going for them. But the reality is that this is not a party that has a solid, clear, cohesive, or coherent message, not in the least. 
This is a party that is just throwing anything and everything, but not not even in one direction. They're, they're just trying to take aim at conservatives in a, a manner that's not particularly believable with Aaron O'Toole. And I, I, I've had my fair share of criticisms for how the conservatives have run things, how Aaron O'Toole has approached certain topics. This is an analysis, not an endorsement. But one thing that's important to note here is that I don't think most Canadians are looking at Aaron O'Toole and seeing anyone who is particularly radical. So all of these attacks that are based on this idea of the conservative boogeyman, I don't think are really flying with a guy who comes across and positions himself and by and large is a political moderate. Now, here's an interesting thing, and, and I should, by the way, say that I do not have access to Justin Trudeau's campaign events. I haven't tried because I haven't been in the same city as him when he's had one, but the standing order from 2019 is that uh, they do not uh, recognize me as a journalist, so I can't go. If I were a journalist covering Justin Trudeau's campaign, here's a question that I would like to see asked of him. And bear with me if it gets a little bit politically wonky here. But in 2015, you may remember, Stephen Harper was dogged by all of these hypothetical scenarios. He had a majority government going into the election, and he was asked, if you fall short by just a few votes, so basically that if you lose to a minority government, will you step down? Or will you try to cobble together a coalition to cling to power? And, and Stephen Harper was very transparent about this. He said, my belief is that if I don't get the most seats, I've lost the election. And you had all of these, you know, constitutional professors that were saying, ah, oh, but that's, that's not actually the law. And no, it doesn't need to be. But it's Stephen Harper's view that uh, voters elect a government and whoever they elect should have the opportunity to govern. But I would like to see Justin Trudeau ask this question. Let's say that there's a conservative minority elected on September 20th. Are you, Justin Trudeau, going to try to cling to power by getting the opposition parties to prop you up? Or are you going to accept that the conservatives won the election? And this is a very important question. And you could ask it to Justin Trudeau point blank very easily. And I put it on Twitter. If you don't secure the most seats, can you guarantee you won't try to remain prime minister? And his answer would be very illuminating on that, because I don't think this is a guy that wants to just accept defeat if that's what the voters have in store for him. I think he's going to keep trying to cobble together coalition after coalition after coalition. And all of this panic about conservatives and coalition governments, I don't think is translating to very legitimate questions that need to be asked of Justin Trudeau. And just look, for example, at one of the obvious realities in politics is that in the House of Commons, you have five parties represented. Four of them are left-wing parties. Uh, yes, we have the PPC, we have Derek Sloan running, running as an independent, we've got the Maverick Party and all of that. But in the House of Commons, before Parliament was dissolved, you had the Conservatives on the right, and then you had the Liberals, the NDP, the Bloc Québécois, and the Green Party on the left. And not a single fellow right-of-center party that could prop up the Conservatives. Now, the Bloc Québécois is a little bit of a game-changer because if the Conservatives continue doing what they're doing now, which is uh, trying to put more money into Quebec and start talking about the Quebec nation, and Aaron O'Toole has promised that he would allow Quebec to expand its control of language in federally regulated sectors, uh, a move that has angered a lot of uh, Quebec Anglos, by the way. Not that there are too many of them left, but... Conservatives could theoretically try to get some support from the bloc. However, we remember in 2008 how 
frustrated the conservatives were, rightfully so, at the idea of a coalition government, informal or otherwise, that involved the Bloc Québécois, a party that seeks to take down Canada and break up Confederation. So all of this is, I think, to say we don't know what's going to happen, but we do need to start asking the questions of is Justin Trudeau going to step down if he does not win, but if there is, in his mind, a path to victory in the House of Commons as opposed to a path to victory in what the voters in Canada are deciding. And that's a question that he needs to answer, but more importantly, it's a question the media needs to ask that so far has not been. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. I want to talk about conscience rights, which is one of the most important aspects of the healthcare system, but also, as we're seeing in the last few days, one of the most misunderstood. Justin Trudeau says that if you have conscience rights, it doesn't mean a doctor gets to you uphold their conscience. Rather, it means individual patients can, specifically women. The reality is conscience rights are not just about imposing a religious worldview on patients, which is how the liberals have tried to paint it, but something that has a, a very significant uh, implication if you try to regulate it or take those rights away on the healthcare field. I want to talk about this in just a couple of moments with Dr. Sean Watley, but I, I first want to talk about the political implications of this because shortly after I published my previous show, which came out on Friday of last week, Aaron O'Toole walked back his defense of conscience rights that is enshrined in the conservative platform. So the platform is very clear that there are going to be conscience rights for healthcare practitioners, and this is a pledge that he made in the leadership race going back a year ago. Well, once the liberals started to throw all of these evil, scary social conservative agenda attacks on him, he walked it back. I think we can find a reasonable balance uh, for those conscience protections while ensuring referring of those Canadians to the services is provided. I think Canadians want a reasonable approach here. That is what we will offer. But let me reiterate, I'm here to defend the rights of all Canadians, and that will be my approach as Prime Minister. Will they have to refer? Will they have to refer? Comme j'ai dit, on doit avoir une réorientation pour les services. Oui, yes, they will have to refer because the rights to access those services exist across the country. Now, this obviously went over like a lead balloon among those whose support was instrumental in giving Aaron O'Toole the victory. A lot of the social conservative and pro-life members of the Conservative Party or of the Conservative Movement in Canada, chief among them right now, a, a pro-life action group that uh, was very frustrated by what happened. They put out a, a press release on Friday calling on Aaron O'Toole to clarify his position because it would, as you heard in that clip, require healthcare practitioners to refer. And Alyssa Golob, who's been on this show in the past, says Aaron O'Toole has flip-flopped on a key promise he made to pro-lifers during the conservative leadership race. The conservative party is united. They passed a motion at a policy convention specifically stating the medical professionals would not have to provide effective referrals when it comes to assisted suicide and other procedures such as abortion. People were excited when it was in the platform. And now the conscience rights policy is essentially null and void. 
if they must effectively refer for medically unnecessary procedures such as physician-assisted suicide. Now, it switched to a, a Scott Hayward quote there, but same sentiment. Now, this is where it gets tricky because a lot of people would listen and say, well, you're not providing the procedure. Why does it matter if you're referring? Isn't that just something as simple as letting people know, okay, I don't do this, but they do it over here. Well, in medicine, referral means something very specific. And I saw this addressed by Dr. Sean Watley on Twitter. And I wanted to bring him on the show because I want people to realize why this so-called duty to refer, this requirement of providing a referral is in fact a violation of the conscience rights that need to be upheld by doctors and for doctors and other healthcare practitioners. Sean Watley is the health policy fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute and the author of the fantastic book, When Politics Comes Before Patients. Sean, good to talk to you as always. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Andrew. So the last few days of the campaign, the conscience rights question ha has come up. The conservative platform initially said it was going to protect conscience rights for healthcare practitioners, cue liberal backlash. You fast forward a couple of days and Aaron O'Toole ha has walked it back slightly saying, yes, we won't make anyone do anything except for refer. Now, this would to a lot of people seem like a, a completely reasonable compromise, but I, I saw some of your tweets on this and I I've heard healthcare practitioners bring this up before, and the idea of merely referring something like an abortion or an assisted death it is not as benign as it's made out to be. Explain this. So I'm glad you you brought this to the to the focus of referral. I think a lot of patients assume that um, referral is just kind of like telling people information. And and actually, when you look at what patients want, and I've seen polling data on this, hopefully it'll come out over the next little while, that patients are actually very supportive of their doctors talking to them about things. And I think all doctors want to do this. Let's talk about all the options. Here's the pros and cons of this direction, that direction. How does it fit with you? But when you actually start talking about making a referral, so a medical referral is when I refer you for a procedure that I think is going to be good or help you. You, right? you need your gallbladder out. Okay, so I think you need your gallbladder out. That's my professional opinion. I'm going to refer you to a specialist whom I trust to do a good job. So someone that I respect. An effective referral flips the whole concept on its head. I am now referring you, sending you for something that I don't think is actually going to help you. I actually think you need antidepressants for six months, or I think you need better palliative care or pain relief or something else. So I don't actually think ending your life is a good thing for you. So now I'm sending you for something that I don't think is good to someone that I'm not sure I agree with their approach to medicine and, and nor do I hold them in, in uh, high respect. So now I'm, I'm in, in intimate connection with this therapeutic chain of events that leads towards something that I fundamentally don't agree with. And to be clear, this isn't about freedom of religion. It's about freedom of conscience. And so the debate has been framed in such a way that it's very hard to win that debate, right? A tiny group of people who want to practice their religion versus all these patients who just want medical care. Well, everybody's going to say, well, yeah, I don't share your, your religious beliefs. Why should you impose them on me? That has framed the debate incorrectly. And I can unpack that for you if you want, but I'm not sure if that's where you want to go in this interview. Actually, I would like to, but but just if I can interject for a moment here, I, I know when my old family doctor retired, for example, it was his daughter 
that took over the practice. So you have generation removed between the one doctor and the other. And even in that, there were some slight changes. Now, it's not like all of a sudden, you know, we, we fundamentally inverted, you know, what medicine looks like in this clinic, but each of them has their own approach to certain things. And I, and I know that from doctor to doctor, that's probably pretty common. So the idea of, in general, trying to take away a doctor's right to do what's best for their patient in their eyes, which is why they got into medicine, seems like a very dangerous precedent. Yeah, so really, you're going where I wanted to go exactly. So you're talking about what function does freedom of conscience, we don't usually use those words, but that's what you're getting at. So the basis of a profession, certainly in in medicine, but also in education, in uh, law enforcement, all over the place, you need people to be able to make free and informed decisions on their own in a professional role when they don't have solid evidence either way. So many of the things that we suggest in medicine don't have evidence based support for them yet. So for example, your child falls off a tricycle, hits her head on the ground, and I see you in the eMERGE. And you say, you know, my wife sent me in. That's what usually happens, right? When the dad's in the eMERGE. My wife sent me in and she said, get a CAT scan of my daughter's head or whatever. And so we're there discussing and I'm saying, you know what? There's no literature to support CAT scans for every little child who bumps her head. And uh, I think we should take a different approach. Furthermore, these are the risks of having, you know, doses of radiation on your brain, et cetera. And you say, no, 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 I really want this. And so it becomes a debate of, and you may even have evidence on your side. You might say, well, actually, you know, modern CT scans are very low dose radiation and you might compare them to flying in an airplane. And so we have an actual um, uh, data based discussion. But at the end of it, I need to be able to have the freedom to say, you know, based on my experience and based on my concern for your health, not only today, but 60, 70, 80 years from now, I don't think this is the best direction to go. So that's sort of how freedom of conscience fits into the basis of professions. And that's where the debate needs to happen because we're talking about painkillers and parking stickers and CT scans for kids' heads. And you just go all day long in the clinic. I'm asked to make decisions. So physicians, uh, family docs in, in Canada are gatekeepers for the healthcare system. So to be a gatekeeper, yes, you are informed by evidence, but often you're informed by experience. And you say, you know what, I think the likelihood of you needing another MRI for your anterior knee pain is zero. It's not going to tell us anything. And the patient will say, well, prove it. Well, I can't prove it. And so now I'm making a decision for you based on the absence of evidence, but I'm basing it on professional experience. And this is core to freedom of conscience. So that's where the debate needs to happen, at least on the professional side. And I think those are all completely valid examples, but there are also moral aspects to this, and there are also religious aspects to this. You have some doctors that may have an aversion to birth control or abortion, or in a, in a more, I think, modern example, we know that this uh, liberal bill on assisted uh, suicide could extend to people with mental illnesses, and I, I know there are going to be a lot of doctors that have issues with that. How do you navigate that aspect of it? Because, you know, this is, again, a, a, an example that may or may not have happened, but if you were to have a a Jehovah's Witness doctor who doesn't like blood transfusions. I mean, where is that squaring with the professional side of things that you've just laid out? 
Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you threw up at the opening in the intro, introducing this segment. You said, oh, here we go. We already have abortion into the election campaign. So I'll, I'll use that as an example first. You know, we always hear this. We say, oh, I know people are going to be blocked from getting abortion if we allow docs to act based on their uh, freedom of religion or freedom of conscience in this particular case. Um, that is a red herring. That is just so wrong. We have had decades of direct access to abortion in Ontario. So when you describe the access, you know, the access is outstanding. It is fantastic. You, you, you can access abortion more easily than any, almost any other medical procedure in Ontario right now because you don't have to go through any gatekeeping. If you need one, you want one, you just go get one directly. So to say that oh no, now Andrew, your freedom of religion, conscience, thought, whatever, is going to prevent me from accessing abortion is simply not true in reality. So now when we expand this to uh, medical aid in dying, voluntary assisted suicide, or any other procedure that society has decided that we are going to provide within our medical system, to set this up as a straw man to say, oh look, now you're going to block me from it. If the state has made a promise to provide a particular procedure, then the state needs to make sure it has it can provide that access without forcing docs to be involved with it. We have over 25,000 practicing physicians, in, well, 24 to 25,000 practicing physicians in Ontario. The Ministry of Health, I was just talking with a civil servant just recently, they said they have less than 700 docs right now in Ontario who have been involved with medical aid in dying. And many of them, once they do it once, they say, you know what, this this is just, this is too heavy. I, I can't, the, the emotional burden of me doing this, I don't wanna make this part of my practice. These are people who support it and are actually being involved with it. So we're going to have a major problem of having even enough physicians available and ready and willing to do the procedure. And so to start talking about, you know, compromising freedom of conscience or, or a physician's ability to say, no, I don't feel comfortable with this is a major issue. And I think we need to have this baked into legislation. We need to be able to protect docs. And I would say the vast majority of physicians and voters would agree in that, in that direction. To go back to this idea of the referral, if, if someone were to go to their family doctor who has a, a conscience-based objection to something and the patient says, I, I want this thing, if the doctor were to say, I don't do that, I have an objection to it, but call this person, that's not a referral, correct? That is not a referral. You could also talk about uh, a total transfers of care, but actually that concept of total transfers of care is used by the court to say, oh, you just are trying to abandon your patients now. So actually the people who are against being forced to refer are very, very clear about saying, we're not talking about transferring all care. We don't want to abandon our patients. We want to stay with our patients, you know, as long as they want to be with us. But telling them, you know, there's a number to call or you can reach out. And to be clear, these are healthy people. When you're talking about euthanasia or medical aid in dying, these are healthy people who've already called your clinic and made an appointment and walked into your clinic and will walk out of your clinic. So these are ambulatory healthy people. We're not talking about the in-hospital situation. We mm -hmm. can unpack that if you want later. But simply saying, yes, that, that's how you access. There's a 1-800 number, there's a website, or the, the, local, the local urgent care staffed by public health nurses does it, or the community care health center. Wherever it is, people are generally very okay with uh, saying, yeah, that's how you access it. 
when the liberals are coming out and, and making that comment that Justin Trudeau made last week, you know, freedom of choice doesn't mean the freedom for a doctor to choose. How do you respond to that as a physician? Yeah. So again, he's framing this, uh, framing it as a debate about competing rights and, and, and specifically a freedom of religion versus the access to care, which is a total straw man. And so I, we have to understand what exactly is freedom of conscience and then how does it apply to our system of government and to professions? We've already unpacked how it applies to professions, but I'll, I'll read to you from a Supreme Court of Canada case, uh, 1993, right? Rodriguez case. This is Antonio Lammer saying here, quote, an emphasis on individual conscience and individual judgment also lies at the heart of our democratic political condition or tradition, rather. The ability of each citizen to make free and informed decisions is the absolute prerequisite for the legitimacy, acceptability and efficacy of our system of self-government. And then more recently in 2009, Justice Abella, again, Supreme Court of Canada, quoting a European case, said, quote, freedom of thought, conscience and religion. So she clumps them all together this time is one of the foundations of a democratic society. It is one of the most vital elements that go up to make the identity of believers and their conception of life, but it is also a precious asset for atheists, agnostics, skeptics, and the unconcerned. The pluralism indissociable from a democratic society, which depends upon it. So this is the Supreme Court of Canada saying, this is the prerequisite for democratic society. And so for, for uh, Justin Trudeau to be throwing this out on a campaign and saying, oh yeah, it's his rights against her rights, and that is just so wrong, and, and he knows it, or he should know it. Dr. Sean Watley, author of the book, When Politics Comes Before Patients, also health policy fellow over at the McDonald laurier Institute. Uh, Sean, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks again, Andrew. Dr. Sean Watley, always a pleasure. We've got to end things here. My thanks to you all for tuning into the program today, Canada's most irreverent talk show. You can keep up with all of our election coverage over at tnc.news. We'll be back with another edition of the program in just a couple of days' time. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.